0: Let's pray before we get started. Father, oh, just thank you. Just thank you for uh, today. Thank you for this message. Thank you for your spirit, which was so powerfully present here during worship. I'll just pray that that sense of your presence continues through this message. Just give you the thanks, Lord, all the praise, honor, and glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, recently uh, there was a father who was trying to take an afternoon nap on a Sunday afternoon. Not a practice, not unknown to myself. But he was in his living room, and he had a small, uh, uh, um, a young child who was there with him. And as Dad is on the couch trying to take a nap, the little boy is constantly saying, "You know, Daddy, I'm bored. Daddy, I'm bored." Um, so his father in trying to make up a game for him, found a picture, now this is not an exact, this is as close as I could come, but he found, in a newspaper, he found a picture of the world, you know, like a globe that's exploded out so you could see all the countries. So he took that, and he tore it up into about 50 pieces. And he he looked uh, at his little boy, and he said, okay, son, this is a puzzle. And I want you to put this back together, okay? And he figures that you know it's probably going to take him an hour and a half, two hours, and he will get a nice nap in while this is this is going on. So he tries to go back to sleep, and about 15 minutes later, the little boy woke him up, saying, "Daddy, I'm finished. It's all put together." Well, his father goes, "Well, you're kidding." because he knew that his son didn't know where all the countries were in relationship to each other and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, you know, kind of in amazement, he looks at his little boy and he says, well, how did you do that? And his son said, well, Dad, there was a picture of a person on the back page of that newspaper. And when I got the person put together, the world looked just fine. Now, we're beginning um, a new series today, and it's called The Road to Recovery. And it's going to work on your person. Because it truly is amazing how much better the world looks when your person is put together the right way. We're going to talk in this series about how to handle and how to overcome the hurts that you've had in your life, how you can deal with the habits that are messing up your life and the hang-ups that have caused pain in your life, hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And the verse that's going to sort of be our theme verse throughout this whole series is taken from uh, Isaiah and it's Isaiah 57:18 through 19. And this is, this is God speaking. And the Lord says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Now that is a great promise of God. And there's five parts to this idea of recovery that God wants to do in your life. First, he says, if you've been hurt, God says, I want to heal you. If you're confused, God says, I I want to lead you. If you've ever felt like you were helpless to change anything, then God says, I want to help you change that. If you feel anxious or worried or afraid... God says, I want to offer you peace. If you've ever felt like no one understands your problem, then God says, I want to comfort you. The fact is that life is tough, and we live in an imperfect world. We're hurt by other people, We hurt ourselves, and we then hurt other people. And scripture is very clear. It says, all have sinned. And that means that no one is perfect. We've all blown it. We've all made mistakes. We hurt, and we hurt other people. What does that mean? That means that this series is for everyone. Everyone in this room needs recovery unless you've lived a perfect life. But if you haven't, and if you have, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. Would you please raise your hand? (laughs) We'd like to honor you today and try to see if we can emulate your example. Since no one raised their hand, then I'm assuming that none of us have lived a perfect life. And so... If you've ever been hurt, if you've ever had a hang-up or a habit that you need to get rid of, then you need recovery. The good news in all of this is this. It's that regardless of the problem that you need recovery from, whether it's emotional, financial, relational, spiritual, sexual, or whatever, regardless of what you need recovery from, The steps to recovery are always the same, and they're found in Scripture. And you can summarize these principles by using the word recovery as an acrostic. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to take a letter each week and look at the eight summarized steps on the road to recovery. And so the first one, the R, is for Realize. And that goes to this, realize I'm not God. I admit I am powerless to control my tendency to do wrong things, and my life is unmanageable. So let me ask you some questions. Do you ever stay up late when you know you really need to sleep? (laughs) Do you ever eat or drink more calories than your body needs? Do you ever feel like you ought to exercise, but you don't? <laughs> do you ever know the right thing to do, but you don't do it? Do you ever know that something is wrong, but you do it anyway? Have you ever known that you should be unselfish, but you're selfish instead? Have you ever tried to control somebody or something? And found that it was uncontrollable. If your answer was yes to any of those questions, (laughs) welcome to the human race. (laughs) We all need recovery. And for most of us, I think the cause of the problem is this we want to be God. You say, I don't want anybody telling me what's right and what's wrong. I want to decide what's right and what's wrong. I want to call my own shots. I want to make my own rules. I want to put myself at the center of the universe. I want to be my own boss, live my own way. If it feels good, do it. I don't want anybody telling me what to do with my life. That's called playing God. What it says is, I want to control. And the more insecure you are, the more driven you are to control things. You want to control yourself, you want to control other people, you want to control your environment. We're all, to some extent or another, driven to do this, and in that manner we are all playing God in some form or fashion in our own lives. How do we do this? How do we play God? Well, one, we try to control our image. See, you want to control what other people think of you. You don't want other people to really know you. To really know what you're like. So what do we do? Well, we play games. We wear masks. We pretend. We fake it. We want people to see a certain side of us while we hide the other parts. We deny our weaknesses and we deny our own feelings. We say things like, oh, I'm not angry, I'm not upset, I'm not worried, I'm not afraid. We don't want people to see the real us. There's actually a book that's titled, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? And I think the answer to that question, I haven't read the book, but I have a pretty good idea what the answer might be. It's because if I tell you who I really am and you don't like it, well then tough for me because I'm all I've got. And that scares us to death. And so we try to hide it and we try to control and manage the image that we present to everybody else. Secondly, we try to control other people. Parents try to control their kids. Kids try to control their parents. Wives try to control their husbands. Husbands try to control their wives. People try to control other people. Are there any office politics where you work? (laughs) Countries try to control other countries. This goes on and on and on. See, we use a lot of different tools to manipulate each other. We use guilt sometimes to control, we use fear, we can use praise. Some of you use the silent treatment. Some of you use anger or rage. We use all of those different things to try to control people. Three, we try to control our problems. We are really, really good at this. We use phrases. Have you ever said something like, I can handle it? It's it's really not a problem. No problem. Well that's, you know, unless you're just kind of saying that in an offhanded way, that's somebody who's trying to play God. I can handle it. I'm okay really. I'm fine. It's all good. See, we control our problems. I don't need any help and I don't need any counseling, not me. Or we say something like, oh, well, I can quit any time I want to. I'll just work it out on my own. And you can probably attest to this if you've tried. But it turns out that the more that you try to fix the problem yourself, typically the worse the problem gets. Number four is that we try to control our pain. Have you ever really thought how much time you might spend running away from your pain? Trying to avoid it or deny it or escape it or reduce it or postpone it? People try to postpone pain in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's by eating or maybe by not eating. We try to postpone our pain by drinking too much or by smoking or by taking drugs or by getting in and out of relationships. We'll say something like, well, this next relationship is what I really need to feel whole and significant. And then you get in the relationship. And then you decide, oh, well, that, that wasn't it. And then you get out of that relationship. And it's in and out and in and out, one after the other. Or you develop some kind of compulsive habit to try and control your pain. Or you become abusive and you get angry. Maybe it's yourself, maybe at other people. You get critical or judgmental. And all those are ways that we're just trying to hide the pain that we feel ourselves. Or maybe you get depressed. There's all kinds of different responses to this. And there's probably more, but I can think of four things at least that happen when we're trying to do this, when we're trying to, you know, play God and, and do all of these you know, use all these methods of control to try to manage things. Well, the first is you get afraid. You know, when you try to control everything it can be kind of scary. Another response is you can get frustrated. Did you ever notice that it's really frustrating to try to be the general manager of the universe? <laughs> we can encounter fatigue. It's it's Plain God is tiring. If you're going to do it right, you're going to have to work at it you're going to get tired. And then, you're going to fail. <laughs> See, it's the one, playing God is the one job description that I, you will guarantee to fail at. It's not going to work for you. Now, to help you, I guess, be more honest with yourself and be more honest with God, then each week of this series, I'm going to show probably one, maybe two, video testimonies. Um, These are real people who have experienced real hurts and who've worked through this same process uh, toward recovery. Now, these are actual uh, Celebrate Recovery graduates, I guess you could say, (coughs) uh, that have been through the program at Saddleback Church, which is where it originated 30 years ago. So today we're going to watch a portion of the clip about CJ and Linda:
1: Hi, Linda. I'm a very grateful believer in recovery for codependency.
2: I'm CJ, and um, I'm a grateful believer who struggles with alcoholism. We would like to share with you how God's miracles can take the heart of a hardened alcoholic. And a raging, resentful codependent.
1: (laughs) His words, not mine.
2: Uh. (laughs) Oh, and turn them into grateful, joy-filled servants' hearts. My family was influenced by a very strict German father. We didn't express our feelings or emotions. For sure, we never talked about them. Love and God were not ever discussed. My dad was a yeller, so anger was a fearful emotion for me. My religious background started in a Midwest rural uh, Methodist church. I learned about a very Old Testament God. My God and my father were much the same, angry and fearful. This dysfunctional background set the stage for my avoiding emotions. I moved to California and it was during this time that I met Linda. We were married in 1952.
1: At 18, I was the happiest bride that there ever was. We had each other. We thought we didn't need anything else. When I married, my mother's parting words of advice were, remember CJ is the most important person in your life now. Put his needs first. Don't bother him with your problems. Take good care of him. And by the way, never buy lettuce with brown leaves. <laughs> that was premarital counseling in the 50s, folks. I, know, I knew that I had all the information I needed to be the best wife the best lover, and when the time came, the best mother. There were, they were years of happiness for me. I filled my life with my home and taking care of my husband and my three children. It was very important for me to do all the things that I should be doing, never saying no, because what would people think? The years passed, our lives got busier, the problems came in our lives with our children and with the loss of CJ's job. It was harder and harder to talk or to share, and we grew further apart. I remember just wishing that life would go away. It never occurred to me to share my pain with anyone, and certainly it never occurred to me to share it with God. All I could think of was, what am I doing wrong? Why is this happening to me? If CJ or the children would just change, I'd be okay.
2: I was certainly ill-equipped for marriage, and certainly as a father. I always put other priorities ahead of my wife and my family. As family issues became more painful, I started to numb my feelings with alcohol. Drinking had become a priority in my life. I began to disrespect myself, Linda, and my family. Soon I found myself not respecting our marriage vows. The breaking down of my morals was also happening, and lusting crept in as Satan showered me with this sickness. My marriage vows that Linda and I had always felt were special were slowly disappearing. My heart became hardened, and I completely turned away from the God that I grew up fearing. I was a full-blown alcoholic with all the denial to go with it. I was a practicing liar, and as time passed, I even began to believe my own lies.
1: About this time, CJ made a decision to accept a job in Orange County. That meant that we would have to sell our home of 22 years and move, and that felt scary for me, but it also felt exciting. It maybe could be a new beginning for us. After we moved, we even visited some churches, but they were always too big, or too small, or the people weren't friendly, or they met in a gym or a tent, and that didn't seem like church to me. (laughs) CJ's job took more and more time. I began to feel a loneliness that I had never felt before, an empty spot in the middle of my heart that I tried to fill with many things. CJ and I were on different tracks. I felt we were traveling in opposite directions. I felt unloved and certainly not cherished. My life became a dark place filled with anger, confusion, self-doubt, and distrust. My eyes were blinded to the facts that shouted at me and stared me in the eye. Our lives and our love had changed. Alcohol was more and more a part of CJ's life and anger was more a part of mine. I finally faced the fact that there was another woman in my husband's life. I had ignored all the signs, I had isolated myself and my main feeling was, why has this happened to me? Why is God letting this happen to my perfect marriage? I promised God and CJ that I would change, that I wouldn't be angry and criticizing, and that I would be a better wife. I bargained with everything I could. Time passed, nothing changed. The arguments were more frequent, the pain grew greater, the words harsher, the silences longer, the shouting louder, and the desperation deeper. Periodically, I prayed, telling God I would turn it all over to him if he would make it all go away, if he'd make CJ quit drinking and make our life whole again. I would then proceed to do things my own way, never listening for an answer to my prayer or letting it go. When nothing changed, I refused to see that I hadn't changed, that I was praying the same prayer in the same way that I always had. My isolation was great. I put on my masks and went out to meet the world hoping nobody would see the pain or try to reach out to me. I was so angry with God, feeling even he had deserted me.
2: At about this time, even though we didn't know it yet, God was about to give us some choices. Linda and I began to visit a church that they called Saddleback. I would check the bulletin, very casually of course, for AA meetings, but conveniently I found none. I sometimes wondered what that celebrate recovery was, but it certainly didn't relate to me.
1: Our daughter and our youngest son came to the house to talk to us one morning. My daughter told me she was worried about me. She said I had almost ceased to communicate with her. Our son said it feels like you and dad don't have a relationship anymore and we're worried about that. I took a deep breath, swallowed my tears and admitted out loud for the first time that they were right. I hastened to add that they needed to be talking to their dad that if he would just stop drinking, we might be able to build a life together again.
2: (laughs) They also confronted me on my excessive closet drinking. I made a commitment to them and on Friday evening, February 29th of 1996, I went up the hill to the church and made that long walk across the parking lot to the Celebrate Recovery meeting. I identified with the circle that I had 24 hours of sobriety a man in the circle by the name of Big Al jumped up and said, congratulations. Then he grabbed me and gave me a big hug. (laughs) I really was very unsure about that move. But you know what? I soon learned to love those hugs and I haven't turned one down yet. Big Al assured me that night if I kept coming back I would begin to see some of God's miracles. I agreed that night to start a 12-step program the next week. The first question in the step class, what do you have control over in your life? My list was very long. (laughs) But after uh, about a 30 minutes of very heated discussion, came down simply to nothing. I, I really have control over nothing except to get on my knees before God. This was the very first step in admitting that I was powerless.
1: I didn't go that first evening because I thought this is his the thing. He's the one that needs to get well and that was my denial. I had noticed in the bulletin that there there was a group for codependents, but I really didn't want to go sit with a bunch of ladies and tell them about my life. Maybe they wouldn't like me if they knew all those things. Over the next few months, C.J.'s joy began to be noticeable to me. He was working his steps and giving back by being a part of the barbecue team. It seemed like each time he came, he went up the hill, he came back home with greater joy, even though he always smelled like onions and barbecue sauce. Kind of like he does tonight. (laughs) I beg your pardon? I began to see changes that gave me hope, and so I decided that I would try celebrate recovery. The people were friendly, the music was good, there were some good hugs, but I wasn't sure about letting total strangers into my life, but I'd made the choice to try.
2: I have an everyday ritual in my quiet time, in my car, at night, wherever I might be. Dear God, I've tried to do it all by myself, on my own power, and I've failed. It is my prayer to daily turn my will over to you, to daily seek your direction and your wisdom for my life. Please continue to help me. Amen. During this time, I had become very close to my step study group. They became my accountability partners. As I began to work the steps, each day God brought more thoughts from the past, many of which I hadn't even thought about for many, many years. As I recorded each episode, I felt that much closer to God, and my heart became much lighter as the bonds and the chains were lifted one by one. My step study group, my wife's patients, and my sponsor's encouragement helped me to work this step. Each day the light became brighter. The guilt and resentments began to lessen and disappear. I began to realize a personal relationship with my loving and forgiving Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves me in spite of myself and the things that I had done. I began to realize what the word grace meant. Isaiah 1:18 says, come, let's talk this over. Says the Lord, no matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can take it out and make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you white as wool.
0: Could you hear all of the uh, elements of how they were trying to play God in their own lives. Numerous times they they talked about that. So you hear CJ and Linda's story. So how do you react? I can tell you two ways not to react. First is you saying Well, my problem's not that bad. That's called denial. How bad does that hurt or that relationship or that pain, that problem or that memory have to get before you admit that you need help? One man said, It happened to me when the acid of my pain finally ate through the wall of my denial. You see, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone. How's your pain level? It's a warning light, like those ones on your dashboard. You should listen to it. the other way not to react is to say well that's fine I can solve my my own problems this series on recovery is for someone else. Well that's called denial too. And unless you have had a perfect life which we have already established none of us have, then there are some things that you need to deal with. You say well I can handle my problem. I can take care of it. Well, here's the truth. The fact is that if you could handle it, you would have, but you can't, so you won't. And so, what's the cure in all of this? Well, the first step on the road to recovery is to admit that you're powerless to do anything about it. Scripture is very clear in saying that when you admit weakness, you find strength. And this is not a popular idea in our American culture, which is, you know, self-sufficiency is king, raise yourself up by your own bootstraps, don't depend on anybody else, I'm the Lone Ranger, who actually had Tonto, so (laughs) he wasn't completely by himself. But this whole thing, is this is the first step. It's essential in getting your act together. You have to admit that you're powerless to do this by yourself. You need other people, and most of all, you need God. So let me ask you, what needs changing in your life? What hurt or hang-up or habit have you been trying to ignore? For many of you, that's going to be the hardest step of the whole process. It's hard for us to to admit that we need help because it's very humbling. It says, I'm not God, and I don't have it all together as much as I'd like everybody to think I do. But let me tell you a secret. If you tell that to somebody, they're not going to be surprised. Because they know you're not perfect, God knows you're not perfect, and you know you're not perfect. You just have to admit it. It just means being honest and facing a problem that you've been trying to or wanted to ignore for a very long time. So, I hope you're going to join me as we go down this road to recovery over the, this week and the next seven to follow. Okay, so there's the, there's the first step, that's the R, the realize. Realize I'm not God. I admit I am powerless to control my tendency to do wrong things, and my life is unmanageable. Now, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Last week, um, at the end of the sermon, I started this uh, little add-on, I guess, to the message um, called Living by the Book. And what that really means, for those of you that were new, are new or weren't here last week, let me explain. We are a church that really that believes all the Bible. Okay? We, didn't, we don't believe in cessationism or some of the other theories that are put up to explain why the Holy Spirit doesn't, isn't around anymore. We believe He is. We believe He still can do things. We believe He empowers us to do things. And living by the book means that we want to live like the Bible says. That the stuff that we read about in Acts are, are not just stories from the past but are things that can happen today. Just as a way of um, illustrating that, <laughs> we had one of the painters came in and needed some water. It was a lady. Her name was Barbara, wasn't it? So she comes in and asks me for some water and so I go to the closet and fill up the bucket with water and, and go back and I don't know exactly what prompted her to start telling us this story but she told us this whole story that essentially it was kind of funny I was joking with Mark this went on for about 15 minutes and she told us the short version so I'm thinking thank God we'd still be listening to Barbara she was a delightful lady don't get me wrong but essentially the story was that that God brought her son back from the dead I'm not going to get into the whole story But, see, if you don't live by the book, you don't believe that that happened. You'll come up with any other explanation other than the fact that God could have done that to explain it. Well, he wasn't. Same thing that people say, they make up these stories about Jesus not having really been crucified. Well, he was never really dead. (laughs) He was just passed out or whatever. No, he was dead. God raised him back to life. And apparently, God did this for Barbara's son, who, from having a traumatic brain injury and being, for all intents and purposes, dead, is now an honors student at Old Dominion University. So to kind of set up the little clip we're going to see, and then then we'll be finished. But one of the things that I have noticed that really seems to trip people up when they've been kind of going after the things of the Spirit is when something weird or unusual happens. Some manifestation of God appears, and we don't understand it, so then we automatically think, well, it's got to be satanic. And I'll give you an example. Sometimes when people receive prayer under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they fall down. Okay, Jeff, why does that happen? I don't know. (laughs) I cannot find it anywhere in Scripture. Now, I know there's a place. Some people will try to bend to make fit that. And it's when Jesus is arrested in the garden and he says something and all the soldiers fall down. Okay, well, to me, that's a stretch. To me. Maybe you think, well that's a perfect explanation. Okay. But I can't find anything in scripture but yet my experience tells me that when I am praying for someone that sometimes that happens. And it's documented in books about revivals down through the ages. So in this Living by the Book" segment today, which is like about a three-minute clip, I'm hoping that what you will find in this is a healthy perspective for dealing with those times when God gets out of the box that you have put him in.
3: 2003, when I had my encounter with with Jesus, I started asking him. I said, "I, I want to just experience everything your kingdom offers, no matter what it costs me." And I really meant that. And I was in Atlanta, and I said, "I ask you to open my eyes to the angelic realm." And I heard loudly, "You're not mature enough yet." And I said, "Okay, you know, none taken, none taken."
0: <laughs> and, um, so that's why I haven't seen the angel. You know, <laughs>
3: And, and this is after already seeing blind eyes open. And a couple of years later, when was Finger of God released?
1: 2007, 8. Yep,
3: okay. A couple of years later uh, at our church, I started to preach that we need to be open to a God outside of the box. And we just need to really go for it no matter what it cost us. And gold dust started manifesting. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. And I just thought, this is going to be exciting. God's moving. Hey, it's time to go. I mean, we're, we're about, this church is about to explode. We lost 40 families. Wow. We had oil appearing in people's hands, gold dust everywhere. I bet I asked God a thousand times, what is it? And he never would tell me. And then I stumbled across this movie from this fellow <laughs> called Finger of God, and he interviews you. And I found someone of like, okay, well, I'm not crazy. Still didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And then he was a bigger skeptic than I was in the movie. I'm like, this guy, he did not know what it is either. And what is all this stuff? From that point till now, when these encounters happen, I have found that very rarely is everyone very happy about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I was in a meeting not too long ago. Gold dust manifested all over my boots. I looked down. I, I I just don't make a big deal out of it. The most awkward moment, and this is with witnesses, we had about a 60-foot gold cloud, wow, glory cloud. I don't know, not in the spirit, in the room, manifest in a 9 o'clock service. Not many people were in the room yet, mm-hmm. maybe only a couple of hundred people. I asked God what it was. He didn't tell me. The way that I'm wired, I don't have to understand I'm not obsessed with it. I don't have to go get seven prophetic handbooks and people praying all over the country. Here's what I told the church. Let's just keep our eyes on the father of this thing. Let's just just stay there. And what we're noticing now, years later, the families that thought we would become a crazy church are realizing that we value the word. We're just open to whatever God wants. And if he wants to give you a gold tooth, then man, I'll cheer that.
0: If you never have seen the movie Finger of God, the lady that was sitting at the end of the table, Darren Wilson was the guy in the middle. There was a lady next sitting next to him. It's his aunt. And what started his whole quest on this was the fact that his aunt was in a meeting and God restored a tooth and gave her a gold tooth. And he, of course, heard that and was like, no, <laughs> I've got to figure out what the heck's behind this because that doesn't sound right to me. Uh, but lo and behold, now probably six, seven movies later, you know he is firmly rooted as a believer. Um, and I, it was so interesting. I was thinking, knowing that this clip was coming, I thought it was so cool. Lainey and all of us this morning were singing through it all. My eyes are on you. That's exactly what he was saying. If if we get all tangled up in in, in seeing things that we don't understand and we stop looking at the Father, it's all for naught. We just start chasing the manifestations of God and we never engage with our own Creator who is the author of all of that anyway. And so I really hope uh, from the bottom of my heart that all of us, as we continue to move you know, further and further into the things of God and the things of the Spirit, we'll adopt that attitude that, okay, if something happens that I don't understand, it doesn't mean you, ha- you you necessarily ignore it. You know, please, if you ever were to see something, come and talk to me, John, Mark, any of us would be happy to kind of talk with you about that and help and work through it. And also, and I'm tell you, I'm going to be right up front with you. I may not have much of an answer for you. And so we may just have to pray about it together. But I think we do a tremendous disservice to our God and to our own selves and our faith if we are going to just immediately start to discount things without even giving God the opportunity. And, you know, he may not tell us, Chad, there are has asked a lot. It sounds like, and God's never really told him anything. He's like, well, okay, I can deal with that. That's just the way uh, life's going to be. So, uh, just let that be. Let that kind of soak in, and, and and take that as a, uh, just as a as a teachable moment to. I'm struggling with really what I want to say, but with just. Allowing God to be God. You know, I think that's what it comes down to. Is allow God to be God and don't put him in a box. And I think if we'll all do that, we'll all be just fine. Um, If I could get some folks up front who would be willing to pray folks who have been released to pray. And what I, I kind of was trying to listen for what God was doing when we were worshiping this morning. Could we get the lights off too, please? Um, was this, you know, this is a time for you to encounter God, personally. Like I said, we believe that what happened in the book of Acts and other places in scripture didn't just stop. Once the Bible was completed, the way some theologians will try to tell you. And so we, we believe you can get prayer for things, and God will heal. God will deliver. God will do all kinds of things. God will comfort all the things that uh, we know God to be a God of. And so this is an opportunity to encounter that God. If there, so if there is something that you're dealing with in terms of a physical need, spiritual need, emotional need, see one of these folks here for, uh, and let them pray with you. Um, I would also say this, and this was what God sort of impressed upon me, If you are someone who wants to go deeper into the things of the Spirit, then come up and see either me or see John. Because we would love to pray for you for that to happen. Um, So, but for anything else, see any one of these folks. So I'm just going to pray a a little blessing here. It's a dismissal. Um, And from that point, you're free to Stick around, you're free to get prayer, you're free to just stay in worship or visit, or you can leave, whatever you want to do. We're okay with it. So Father, I just thank you for uh, for, for this day, for the time that we've had. I pray that our worship was pleasing to you, and that the message was pleasing to you as well. God bless all of these, your people. Touch them in a mighty way. Begin to surface in them any, the realization of any hurts or habits or hang-ups that they may have that need to be dealt with so that they may begin that process of admitting their powerlessness and turning to you. Give you thanks and praise, Lord. And I ask all of this now, in Jesus' name. Amen.